There is no reforming the schools. The options are survival or escape. But this realization actually marks the beginning of a new and fulfilling educational journey. For both students and parents. Welcome to the School Sucks Project. Self-directed learning enables us to sort of broaden our view of what a teacher is, so Mm -hmm. that it's not just someone who's sort of certified in a specific field, but, you know, there's lots of different teachers around us. So the man who owns the skateboard shop that my son spends a lot of time at is a teacher to him. Right. Um, The, you know, free YouTube videos that my daughter watches to learn how to knit and crochet that's you know her teacher the neighbor that we have who's really interested in bugs and has a lot of knowledge that is my six-year-old's teacher so i think it really broadens our definition of what a teacher is and in a much more authentic way welcome back to the essential school sucks this is brett hi today is july 12th 2022 and we are going back about five years for my very first conversation with Carrie McDonald. You already heard Carrie earlier in the series, in the previous section of shows. Carrie holds a master's degree in education from Harvard University, where she studied education administration, planning, and social policy. She's written for numerous magazines, including Forbes. She is a founding member of alternativestoschool.com, and she was on the board of directors of the Alliance of Self-Directed Education. It's also worth mentioning she's the author of a book called Unschooled, Raising Curious, Well-Educated Children Outside the Conventional Classroom. So what I wanted to offer you here was a kind of case study. Carrie is the home-educating parent of four children, all five years older now than they were when we recorded this in 2017. Carrie and I actually might be talking again soon for her show, so I'll be sure to follow up with her about how everybody is doing. Carrie's podcast is called Liberate Ed. I hope to be one of her guests soon. And we have exchanged a couple messages about that, so I'm confident it will happen. If you want to support School Sucks Project through this essential School Sucks endeavor, please take a look at the show notes. There are numerous ways to send value to me in return for the value you are getting from these shows or that you can imagine millions of people could get from these shows if we play our cards right with marketing, which would require your support. And as soon as you do any one of them, whether it's supporting us on Patreon, purchasing the Ideas Into Action Summit, or engaging with our partner for The Essential School Sucks, which is Praxis, even more value will be returned to you immediately. That's how we do things around here. Hey, if you're already in the university, please consider coming to one of our meetings. We meet every Tuesday and Thursday. I shouldn't even say this because I'm about to change the schedule to accommodate more people. But if you're already there, come to the meetings. We've had a couple of great ones lately. One was on the Georgia Guidestones, which led into a very amusing and investigative conversation. The other was on this question, should we stop pointing out the hypocrisy of the left? It is bad in both practicality and presentation, and it is the most worn out thing on the internet, if you ask me. There's one of three choices. They don't care, they don't know what hypocrisy is, or it's a strategy and you're playing right into their hands. What a great conversation that was. So. You can be an university member through our top tier on Patreon uh, on a monthly basis, or you can purchase the Ideas into Action Summit, sspuniversity.com slash ideas into action if you want to see what that program is all about, if you want to see what all the offerings in it are. It is essentially using a critical thinking system to become better at learning and better at persuading. You can listen to these conversations I mentioned just by being in our entry-level tier on Patreon. It's called The Friend of School Sucks. It shows that you support our mission and our message. And there are dozens and dozens of these university conversations available for you there, even though I only take what I think are the very best ones. And then I edit them and I put them up for supporting listeners. All right, this show has been a long lead-in. Even though we're talking about solutions, there are some reminders about the problem we are trying to escape at the very beginning of this show. So this is The Essential School Sucks number 23, originally released July 19th, 2017. 
as podcast 504, Unenclosed Children and Self-Directed Learning with Carrie McDonald. Thanks for listening and take care. The secret of American schooling is that it doesn't teach the way children learn, and it isn't supposed to. School is engineered to serve a concealed command economy and a deliberately restratified social order. It wasn't made for the benefit of kids and families as those individuals and institutions would define their own needs. School is the first impression children get of an organized society. And like most first impressions, it is a lasting one. According to school, life is dull and stupid. Only consumption promises relief. Coke, Big Macs, fashion jeans, that's where the real meaning is found. That's the classroom's lesson, however indirectly delivered. These decisive dynamics which make forced schooling poisonous to healthy human development aren't hard to spot. Work in classrooms isn't significant work. It fails to satisfy real needs pressing on the individual. It doesn't answer real questions experience raises in the young mind. It doesn't contribute to solving any problem encountered in actual life. The net effect of making all schoolwork external to individual longings, experiences, questions, and problems is to render the victim listless. This phenomenon has been well understood at least since the time of the British enclosure movement, which forced small farmers off their land into factory work. Growth and mastery come only to those who vigorously self-direct, initiating, creating, doing, reflecting, freely associating, enjoying privacy. These are precisely what the structures of schooling are set up to prevent on one pretext or another. As I watched it happen, it took about three years to break most kids. Three years confined to environments of emotional neediness with nothing real to do. In such environments, songs, smiles, bright colors, cooperative games, and other tension breakers do the work better than angry words and punishment. Years ago, it struck me as more than a little odd that the Prussian government was the patron of Heinrich Pestalozzi, inventor of multicultural fun and games psychological elementary schooling, and of Friedrich Frobel, inventor of kindergarten. It struck me as odd that J.P. Morgan's partner, Peabody, was instrumental in bringing Prussian schooling to the prostrate South after the Civil War. But after a while, I began to see that behind the philanthropy lurked a rational economic purpose. The strongest meshes of the school net are invisible. Constant bidding for a stranger's attention creates a chemistry producing the common characteristics of modern school children. Whining, dishonesty, malice, treachery, and cruelty. Unceasing competition for official favor in the dramatic fishbowl of a classroom delivers cowardly children. Little people sunk in chronic boredom. Little people with no apparent purpose for being alive. The most destructive dynamic is identical to that which causes caged rats to develop eccentric or even violent mannerisms when they press a bar for sustenance on an aperiodic reinforcement schedule. Much of the weird behavior school kids display is a function of the aperiodic reinforcement schedule and the endless confinement and inactivity to slowly drive children out of their minds. Trapped children, like trapped rats, need close management. Any rat psychologist will tell you that. everybody welcome back to school sucks it's july 18th we go back to basics today remember the basics of course you do and maybe you're new lots of people are you know what sure this show is called school sucks but frankly school is not one of my favorite subjects i find it boring it's like yeah the unions yeah the prussians we get it let's be constructive i tell myself so instead of just rambling on about the state of the schools like some grumpy old dad you know what we do instead? We talk about education. And that is a self-directed, lifelong endeavor guided by the intrinsic motivation of the learner. Ideally, a learner who has been freed from the captivity of public schools. The 50 to 60 hour a week investment children and teens have to make in those places often gets in the way of the first thing. 
The clip that opened the show is from a video that I made a couple years ago called The Scientific Management of America Part 2. It's part of the Underground History of American Education video series. It comes from John Taylor Gatto's book of the same name. It is in Chapter 2, An Angry Look at Modern Schooling. It is Section 33, An Enclosure Movement for Children. That is one of the problems we're going to be addressing on the show today. My guest is Carrie McDonald. Carrie has a blog called Whole Family Learning, where she discusses natural learning and natural living and the parenting to support both. She is also one of the founding members at Alternatives to School.com, and she sits on the board of directors at the Alliance for Self-Directed Education. School Sucks producer Mike is a friend of Carrie's, and he thought it was curious that the two of us had never crossed paths in the last eight years, so he set up this discussion, and I'm certainly glad that he did. Before we move into it, I want to play just a couple of clips from one of the pioneers of self-directed learning, John Holt, interviewed here in 1984. He addresses two questions. Number one, aren't parents strong influences on changing school? Remember, this is from 1984. They knew a lot less then. And question two, how do people use self-directed learning? And then we'll move into my conversation with Carrie. More stuff coming later this week. Thanks for listening, everybody, and take care. Usually what the complaint is that the schools haven't been tough enough. I mean, the, the reason that none of these crises, none of these uproars lead to any improvement is because they don't understand what the trouble is. Uh, or, now, I, this, the position I will state is one I've been saying for 20 years or more, and it was a minority position then and probably will remain to be, but what I... What I contend and assert is that kids come into, babies come into the world extraordinarily curious, eager to learn, extraordinarily resourceful and competent at learning, that they are, in the most literal sense of the word, scientists. They do exactly what scientists do. They, they use the scientific method in making sense of the world around them. And then they get to a certain age, which may be as young as three, but in any case, the age of school. And this process is turned off by adults who think they are now going to direct and control the learning of these children. Who They treat them like empty receptacles into which they are going to pour whatever learning they think they ought to have. The child's curiosity, the child's independence, the child's confidence in herself as, as a learner, as an explorer, is undermined, eroded, and destroyed. And after, only may take a couple of years, you get these bored, apathetic, I don't know, any of the kinds of kids you see in, in uh, schools. But I saw this. I mean, I wrote How Children Fail about an exclusive, uh, high-powered Cambridge private elementary school in the year 19... 58. It was in. It was at that time that I wrote in my journal, and in the book How Children Fail. School is a place where children learn to be stupid. And the process that makes them stupid, at least stupid in school, is other people trying to control their learning. Say, let school be a place in which children can continue to explore the world in the ways that are most interesting and productive from the, for them. Let us give them help if they ask for it, answer their questions, put within their reach, put, make accessible to them as much of the world and its materials and resources and skills and people as we can. But let's not try to decide how they are going to use that material. Let the, let the child make the curriculum. To talk in the context of a homeschooling family, that uh, this means that a a family uh, will have books, records, tools, depending on the kinds of things they're interested in, the kinds of things they do. But whatever the parents do, their life is accessible to the children. The children aren't locked in the house. The parents take them where they go. They very often are involved in the parents' work if the, this work makes this possible. They know their parents' friends. They're taken seriously as people. They're talked to. Their concerns are listened to. And their parents meet with other adults. The children are not banished to another room. They are admitted to the world. I mean, simply a part of the world that their parents live in.
Carrie McDonald, welcome to School Sucks Podcast. Thanks, Brett. I'm glad to be here. I thought we would start at your education. You got a master's degree in education from Harvard University, and today you're a very vocal promoter of home education and self-directed learning. I was also in a master's program in education. I don't remember hearing home education or self-directed learning talked about at all. So I'd like to just uh, hear the story of that transition from you know, why you were pursuing a master's degree in education and how you wound up taking a very unique approach, at least as far as the mainstream is concerned, with your own children. Right. So I was an undergraduate uh, economics major with a minor in education, was always interested in education. And my senior year in college, I did an independent research project exploring innovations in education and stumbled upon this idea of homeschooling, which at the time had about a million homeschoolers. This was um, back in 1998. Mm -hmm. And a classmate of mine had a family member who was homeschooling her daughter. So I was able to interview uh, that mom and that daughter and became fascinated by this idea of non-traditional education, learning without schooling uh, in the homeschooling community. And so that triggered an interest in pursuing more research and more learning in the area of education. So I went to the Harvard Graduate School of Education, uh, got a master's degree in education policy, and became more and more interested in alternative education and specifically alternatives to school. But like you mentioned, um, education schools typically aren't interested so much in exploring alternatives to school. Right. Um, so the focus that I had when I was in graduate school was alternative schools, which at the time and to some extent still um, really just focuses on charter schools. And so that's what I spent some time doing in graduate school was was looking at education choice and charter the charter school movement. Um, but still in the back of my mind, always had this idea that there has to be more than just alternative schools. There must be alternatives to school. And of course, I still had that um, initial research and interest in homeschooling. But I sort of put that on the back burner for a while after graduate school. I started my own corporate training company and um, gave workshops and training sessions mostly to professional services firms and uh, employees for the next several years. And then when I became a mom, um, really revisited these ideas of alternatives to school and alternative education and came back to my initial interest in um what possibilities there might be in that space. And so it really wasn't until my oldest daughter, who's now 10 and a half, was two and a half, um, when many of her same age peers, I live in Cambridge, Mass, in Boston, um, were going off to preschools at two and a half. And I would have people come up to me and say, oh, where does your daughter go to school? And I said, oh, no, she's you know, two and a half. She's home with me. And they said, oh, so you're homeschooling. I said, no, you know, she's two and a half. <laughs> she's home with me. But this happened sort of regularly uh, in during that, you know, fall when she was at the age where a lot of uh, kids were heading off to preschools, um, both private and public preschools at the time. So it earlier than I had expected, it caused me to really look into what the education possibilities would be for my own children. So she was two and a half. I had a six-month-old at the time as well. Um, and I came back to homeschooling. So I'm so glad I did because at the time, uh, it enabled me to connect with our local homeschooling community. That's a really vibrant and diverse uh, community in the Boston area. And connect with families through what at the time was the young homeschooler park days. Um, and really meet people and find out more about this philosophy and what homeschooling looked like at the time. And of course, at that point now, we're doubled in size to over 2 million homeschoolers. From Again, from the early days when I first started my research. So it became very clear to me very early on that this was going to be the path. And we really connected with that community, have maintained friendships with folks that we met back when my daughter was two and continue these friendships today. Uh, and as I got more and more into kind of the modern homeschooling movement and seeing what it looked like not only in theory but in practice in my own life, I, I uh, discovered self-directed education, uh, read a lot of Peter Gray's work. I'm sure some of your listeners are familiar with his work yep. and his book, Free to Learn, and his Psychology Today blog, uh, Freedom to Learn. 
uh, and was became fascinated by this idea of self-directed education. And so I was able to team up with um, Peter Gray and Pat Ferenga, who runs John Holt Associates, and Kevin Soling, who is the documentary filmmaker for the War on Kids yes. documentary. Uh, and we started AlternativesToSchool.com to provide some resources and information, insights into self-directed learning. And that has since evolved now into the Alliance for Self-Directed Education, which is a national nonprofit organization um, where we're trying to have even further reach uh, and focus on getting the word out about what self-directed education is, what it looks like for different families, for different organizations, uh, and how we can uh, spread that word and make it more accessible to more families. Absolutely. So lots of topics available to us there. I wanted to go back to the beginning of your story first and ask you, what was so impactful about this encounter you had with home educating families that, uh, interestingly enough, led you to pursue a master's degree in education to investigate this more? What was uh, happening in that home or, or I, I hate to say that in that home because that sounds so limiting, but with that family that really interested you or inspired you? It was just such different learning. It was completely the opposite of what I had experienced in, as a public school student through 13 years mm -hmm. and was really riveting uh, when, you, when, I, when I saw the kinds of experiences that, um, in this case, the mother and the child were really focused on. The daughter was a gifted violinist and was able to pursue that passion. Um, it was a very relaxed environment, very peaceful. It just seemed like such a great way of learning. And then also recognizing their connection in this particular snapshot of their connection to their community and how involved they were with community. And of course, um, like anyone sort of initially focused on homeschooling, particularly back then, I think less so now that homeschooling has become more and more mainstream, but for sure back uh, in its earlier days, my, one of my first questions as an interviewer was, what about socialization? Uh, and, uh, you know, I cringe now thinking that I, <laughs> that I asked that question. But, but um, it was important for me to see, you know, what, what were sort of the outlets. And I think what I realized was the socialization that comes with homeschooling is a much more authentic kind of socialization Indeed, where, yeah. um, you know, young people are immersed fully in their community and are interacting not only with just people of their same age, uh, but a whole diversity of uh, individuals throughout their neighborhoods and community. Yeah. And you have these natural mentorships that, that take place instead of being, you know, with 20 people exactly in the same place as far as development as you and one adult who is, you know, beyond that, you are in a community. Uh, when I was a teacher, I worked with kids who had a lot of behavioral problems, but I was really surprised how they would form these natural mentorship relationships because you would have kids in a class who were 16 and kids who were in a class who were 12. And the older kids really, really enjoyed helping out younger kids. And the younger kids were more willing to seek out help from those older kids instead of from adults. Uh, but school, the more traditional schools that I worked in where kids were age segregated, didn't offer those opportunities. In fact, it seemed like, well, I mean, we all remember this. We went to school. Those kids were pitted against each other because of being in different ages or grades. Right. And I think historically, it's important to remember sort of where this age segregation came from. And yes. It didn't come from uh, any research or exploration of how children would best learn. It came from the Prussian model of education that was then replicated into the compulsory schooling model uh, in America in the mid-19th century that really focused on compliance and control. And so age segregation was a very big part of that. And Horace Mann, who was instrumental in passing the nation's first compulsory schooling statute in Massachusetts in 1852, was enamored uh, with the Prussian model of age segregation and, and compliance and order and replicated that. And that's why we have age segregation now uh, in our compulsory schooling model. So today you have four children that are all preschool through elementary school ages, youngest to oldest. And I'd be interested in learning a little bit more about how education works in your home or what it looks like. And we could right. we could even go, we probably should go child by child because I'm sure it's very different for each one. 
Right. So my, my children are three, six, eight, and 10. I have two boys and two girls. Um, I'll start a little bit with my oldest. So we, you know, have fully embraced this idea of self-directed education, this philosophy of um, essentially following our own interests and passions and exploring our community and the world around us and learning through that. So it sort of takes away this idea that learning is something that is passive, that happens to us, that we must be taught in order to learn. And it flips that on its head to say, no, learning is an innate human instinct. It is what we all have the capacity to do. And in fact, right. are perfectly designed by nature to do. Um, so we've really embraced that idea. And for my oldest daughter, who, as I mentioned, is 10 and a half, um, it's really interesting to see as children get older, what their true passions are and, and the ways that um, adults are able to facilitate learning and connect children to community resources and other resources that enable them to really um, learn more in depth and pursue their passions. So for her, um, she's really interested in um, coding and computer programming. She's interested in crafting and can create anything out of anything um, and is also really fascinated by math and, and wants to pursue a lot of um, learning in math. And so mm -hmm. we've been able to connect her with many different kinds of resources. Um, so in the city, we're lucky that we have lots of opportunities for crafting and she's been able back a couple of years ago when she first became interested in, you know, sewing and knitting and embroidery and crocheting things that I, that neither my husband nor I have any uh, knowledge of. Yeah. <laughs> we were able to figure out, you know, how to connect her. And so, um, there's a, there are several fiber arts and sewing, um, stores and shops in our community. And so we were able to go there. She's able to take some initial classes and some mentor sessions with, some skilled people in these areas. Um, and then it was really interesting, and it's been really interesting to see then over the last couple of years, she's less interested in taking classes in um, these kinds of creative arts and much more able to go to the library. She has completely you know, outgrown the children's section of books for you know, beginning sewing and knitting and children's crafting and is um, you know, in the adult section and ordering books and teaching herself origami and all of these things just from books. So it's been interesting to see how uh, with self-directed learning, you might start with an interest and start with a mentor or a community class and then really move into being, becoming more self-taught using books, using YouTube videos, using other kinds of resources. So that's that case with crafting. And then with coding, we're really fortunate to have a self-directed learning center uh, just around the corner from us where uh, my daughter takes uh, a day a week to go there and she does a lot of computer programming. They tend to be focused more on as like a hacker space, maker space, mm -hmm. um, which is a perfect fit for her. Uh, so she spends a day a week there doing a lot of coding and computer programming. Oh, that's very cool. And, you know, her being the oldest, I wonder... Were you, even though you knew all of this about self-directed learning and home education at the beginning when you started doing this, because none of your kids have ever been to school, was there any apprehension? Was there any concern? I mean, I mean I'm sure that her success and, you know, the development of self-motivation, self-confidence, like watching that happen, I have to think it made it more comfortable with the next three children. But was there any doubt at first or nervousness about going this direction? You know, I feel really lucky. I think you you hit the nail on the head that where she was my first and we were able to see early on sort of how she was able to learn. Um, for example, she was a very early reader. So she learned to read when she was like four and a half, um, which made it really easy to then see, oh, kids can learn. They don't mm -hmm. need to be taught. This is something that if you, you surround them with literacy and you read to them often you give them opportunities, then they will learn to read. So, you know, I often hear stories from parents who, you know, have a more typical reader, um, not reading maybe until age seven or eight, um, sort of worried a little bit about how, you know, does this really work? Does self-directed learning actually happen? Um, and so I feel for them. I think I was really lucky that, that she was, um, you know, I sort of exhibited these, traits of self-directed learning really early and were able, was able to, um, you know, achieve what we would think of as sort of classical proficiency in some of these areas. And then that, that just made it much easier for me to be convinced of self-directed learning and to continue with it. And of course, that was dovetailing at the time with my research into what self-directed learning really looked like. So um, 
So I think it was a bit easier for me to embrace this, just given kind of her experience. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think, too, that when kids go to school, I guess people feel more secure that they're going to develop these essential skills like reading in a school. They're going to be coerced to do that. There isn't going to be any intrinsic motivation in that process for most of them. I mean, certainly these things can happen outside of school. But if you think about the opportunity cost of school for a young learner, when they're spending 35 hours a week, there, not counting homework. I think a lot of parents must say to themselves, well, you know, there's six or seven subjects being taught there out of everything possible in the entire world. I hope one of those things uh, grabs his or her interest so they can, you know, build that motivation. But when you're talking about self-directed learning, the broad range of possibilities, as you're talking about somebody doing crafting and coding, right? Right, right, right. Quite a difference in uh, interest. But that's what's possible outside of that constrictive environment of school. Right. And I think what self-directed learning and self-directed education, you know, kind of enables us to do is, is to get out of the schooled mindset that we, most of us had, um, which is looking at subjects in silos. And so we're right. able to move beyond that to really see the interconnectedness of subjects um, by just pursuing someone's interests. Um, so that's been really insightful as well. And I think, you know, you talked about the coercion piece that happens in school. I think most parents would say, uh, we don't want our kids just to learn to read. We want them to love to read. We don't want them just to learn math. We want them to love math. And right. it's hard to love something that you're really forced to do. Indeed. Some people are able to, but it, it, that's more the exception than the rule. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about your three younger children, too. Right. <clears throat> so I tell you a little bit about my eight-year-old son, who is a big skateboarder. That's his passion right now. Um, and he, I think, just saw skateboarders in the city initially, and that triggered his interest. And we have a brand new skate park in Boston that's an incredible facility. So mm -hmm. he was interested about that. Started watching YouTube videos about skateboarding tricks and techniques. Again, neither my husband nor I nor other people in our immediate circle know anything about skateboarding. So this was truly his own uh, interest and passion. We found that there was a local uh, skate shop owned by a young man who's been interested in skate skateboarding since he was about my son's age. So we took my son there and he was able to connect with that shop owner and, um, you know, see him as a mentor. And he's frequented that shop now um, quite often. Uh, and the, the shop owner is really taken to him, which is exciting. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting to me because I read an article recently about in, in Forbes about, you know, why was it that skateboarders became so... Um, exceptional in the mid-1980s. There was sort of this lull, and then all of a sudden skateboarding really took off in the mid-1980s, and people were getting really, really good doing incredible tricks. And what was it that happened? And what happened was it was dovetailing with um, the v VCR, VHS technology. <laughs> right, right. And so all of a sudden you had these tapes that were coming out, um, instructional tapes on how to skateboard and how to do these really interesting tricks and involved moves. And all of a sudden, there was this explosion in skateboarding and its um, and its skill set. And I see the same thing with YouTube, of course, now, which is much more accessible and easier to learn. Uh, and certainly have seen it with my son. So it, to me, it was this like perfect example of where technology can be an incredible learning tool um, in so many ways, and particularly in um, exposing our children and helping our children to connect to resources that we just don't have. You know, that's always the the question that, that people have for homeschooling families and for self-directed learning families, well, you know, you don't know everything. How can you possibly teach your kids these things? And this just proves, you know, you don't have to, you don't have to know how to skateboard. You just have to know how to connect your child to resources that will help him skateboard better. So that's another example. My goodness. I mean, growing up in the 80s, and I'm trying to remember what I was interested in. I, was, I, I wanted to learn to play the drums, I remember. And that didn't occur to me. I thought I just had to go to, uh, you know, the local music store and hopefully connect with the guy who taught drum lessons. But I also remember, like, not being really positively oriented towards doing work, like practicing an instrument was work. And I think I felt at that age like I was already working plenty, you know, like and it, like that was the, the association with school is that. Learning is pain and boredom. Learning is work. And even, you know, learning to do something like that seemed to fall in the same category 
Like I, I didn't have uh, patience. I just wanted to be good at the drums. I didn't understand it as a as a process because there was there wasn't enough to see. Right. I mean, the the world of today is like, you know, that the, the skateboarding VHS tapes on a magnitude of probably millions. So right, exactly. kids finding these interests it, it, or being able to pursue these interests is much more at their fingertips today. Right. I mean, I think the tragedy, of course, of schooling is that it leads many of us to think of learning as work, to think of reading as, you know, something we have to sort of muddle through, but there's no enjoyment there, to think of math as something that you avoid at all costs. And that's the real residual tragedy, I think, of forced schooling. It's so interesting. I've been researching recently autodidacts and people who've self-taught over over time, and I stumbled upon uh, Jimi Hendrix, of course, one of the greatest Indeed, uh, electric yeah. guitar players of all time, who was entirely self-taught. Um, so when he was, I think, 14 years old, he found a ukulele, a one-string old ukulele in the garbage and just started plucking away. Um, on that single string, listen, listen to Elvis Presley songs, became more and more interested in learning by ear. Then a year later, he bought his first acoustic guitar for $5 and completely you know, taught himself, listened to lots of different kinds of music, really gravitated towards blues. Um, a year later, started his own band, you know, completely self-directed, entirely self-taught. He never learned to read or write music, um, yet went on to, to be this incredible guitarist and was very creative as a result of that um, in Absolutely. terms of his playing style. Oh, my goodness. I mean, I, I think also because of a lack of resources, when he first managed to obtain a guitar, if I'm remembering the story correctly, he's left-handed. Right. And it was a right-handed guitar. That's right. So people, if anyone doesn't know this and they've ever seen videos of Jimi Hendrix and something looks off about what he's doing, he's a left-handed man playing a right-handed person's guitar upside down. That's right. That's so right. A, a style all his own. And, I mean, talk about not letting limitations affect you. You know, like he decided right. he wanted to do this, invented a way of doing it that was absolutely his own. That's never been replicated as far as I know. Right. And I think it, it also shows just the creativity that can come from that. Mm -hmm. So that if he had been taught the way most people are taught guitar in a sort of classical way, and this is the way you do it, and then that that inventiveness that he had would just have never been able to, likely never been able to um, to emerge. Indeed. So we are on to your third child. Yes. Yeah, so my third child is my daughter, who's uh, six and a half and is my bug lover. My house <laughs> and deck are covered in critters um, of all sorts. This was a passion that she became interested in when she was three. And we thought, oh, it's probably just this passing interest in right. bugs. Like a lot of children love bugs. But no, this has held on strong. So <laughs> we have... We are fortunate that in the city we live down the road from the Harvard Museum of Natural History, which has lots to offer for bug lovers. Um, we were able to connect with an entomologist there who um, gifted her some bug collection kits, and we were able to talk to him for a while. Um, and again, there's so many resources, not only just in nature. We try to spend a lot of our time outside, mm -hmm. um, but also... Uh, through the internet, through books, um, and just through hands-on learning. I mean, she just had one of her egg sacs hatch this morning. I was so excited <laughs> to see these little spiders, um, you know, coming out. So that's been really neat for her. And then my three-year-old is... Uh, and that's my, not nerve-wracking that, that spiders yeah. are hatching in your, right. <laughs> in your house? Well, they're in their, they're in their <laughs> Okay, okay. That's good. That's good. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then my three-year-old, his interests are just emerging now. Mostly right. he's just passionate about whatever his siblings are passionate about. So in your community, you said there's a lot of support for home education and self-directed learning. But I, I'm interested, and I think uh, this would help a lot of people in my audience as well, and I know you have a blog about this on uh, alternatives to school. How do you talk to people who maybe are more skeptical about the benefits of self-directed learning. I'd be interested in hearing, you know, the language that you use when you do that. Well, I think it depends on on who's asking. So I find Indeed. a lot of I get a lot of inquiries from parents really interested in self-directed learning 
but are trying to figure out how to convince their spouse or their partner right, <laughs> or their yep. brother-in-law. Very common. Um, and so, uh, and often they'll say, you know, I feel like I need some research. I need some data. And so I'll point them, obviously, to Peter Gray's work. But there's other really compelling research as well. I'm sure your listeners are familiar with the work of Shigata Mitra, whose mm-hmm. 2013 award-winning TED Talk um, looked at children in the slums of India, illiterate children, didn't speak English. Um, and he provided them in a public safe space with internet-enabled computers. And then went back and checked on them periodically without interfering, just observing, and found that um, just given that access to internet-enabled computers in a collaborative, safe, public setting, these children were able to teach themselves English, they were able to teach themselves to read, they navigated the internet successfully, and then he did later studies where he had control groups of children learning in this way in what was called the hole-in-the-wall experiment, right. um, con- contrasted against children that were learning in a typical teacher-led classroom, learning computer skills in both of these groups, and there was the same amount of proficiency in both groups. So his work is just fascinating, and I'm always interested in um, sending uh, skeptics or um, people looking for more research and more data on self-directed learning. I love sending them to, to Shigata Mitra's work. Um, so most of the time, I'm interested in sort of the research of it, and then looking at you know different blogs, different books, different articles that show how families are doing this, what it looks like for them, um, and that it really can work. And I think some of it is just allowing people to realize what their kids have been able to do so far. So mm-hmm. you know your kids are able to roll over and crawl and walk and talk, learn their entire native language um, without instruction. And so it's simply not halting that. It's it's uh, empowering them to continue that process of natural learning beyond early childhood. I also like to ask people to reflect on what they've learned as adults outside of school. You know, I think what we're promoting right. on on your blogs or on my podcast is let's see what happens if we free children to learn the same way adults learn. Right. And I think for a lot of adults, it's unlearning what we learned. Indeed, yeah. <laughs> and realizing that we we have this tremendous capacity to learn. If we're interested in something, we don't always have to run to an instructor or class. We Particularly now with the resources available through the internet, through digital resources, we can, all of us can become incredible self-directed learners. So I think that's the other big piece of it that I feel like now is the moment for self-directed education because we have so many resources that are so easily accessible to so many people. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I also think it's important to clarify something, too, about self-directed learning because, because there could be this assumption that we never use teachers or that right. um, you know, there's no place for expertise when we're all able to learn on our own. And I think it's just a different way of looking at teachers. I think teachers are incredibly important. They've certainly been um, wonderful for my children. But it's this idea of um, children seeking out that kind of experience so that um, they're the ones in the driver's seat. They're the ones determining what they're interested in, figuring out what resources are available with the, uh, the adult guidance and facilitation, and then um, seeking out instruction when and if they want that. Absolutely. You know, I, I worked as an academic tutor for many years, and I remember um, a parent kind of uh, questioning me after one session, one of the early sessions that I had with her say 16 or 17 year old son who was really struggling academically. And eventually I got away from this kind of tutoring. But, you know, I remember going and meeting him for the first time and he was so furious that he had to spend this hour with me. I was just another one of these adults, right? He had a sort of archetype. These are the people who try to make me do quote unquote educational things that I don't want to do. And now you're taking up my free time. And he just sat there. He, I don't even think he looked at me uh, for the first half hour of the first session, which was me, him, and his mother. Um, and he sat there with his arms folded, like this was the greatest injustice that he had ever suffered. And after a couple sessions, uh, I was leaving, and the mother said to me, uh, I hear you guys, because, I mean, this wasn't, you know, cheap. And she said, I hear you guys are, like, chit-chatting a lot. You know, it sounds like you're spending a lot of time not focused on, you know, the task. And, you know, I just said, well, I'm really I'm really trying to build a rapport with your son here because and this was like just popped out of my mouth. uh, If he's not 
interested in me being here, I'm pointless, right? If he doesn't want me sitting across the table from from him, I am useless. And that just, I know I was just trying to explain myself to this mom, but when I said that, I was like, oh, okay, that's cool. That's it. That's the idea. So the teachers, when when students or learners seek them out, they can be incredibly beneficial. But, you know, just the fact of saying, oh, I'm a teacher, that doesn't necessarily mean one is useful. Right. And I also think it involves self-directed learning enables us to sort of broaden our view of what a teacher is so Mm -hmm. that it's not just someone who's sort of certified in a specific field, but, you know, there's lots of different teachers around us. So the man who owns the skateboard shop that my son spends a lot of time at is a teacher to him. Right. Um, The, you know, free YouTube videos that my daughter watches to learn how to knit and crochet that's, you know, her teacher, the neighbor that we have who's really interested in bugs and has a lot of knowledge, that is my six-year-old's teacher. So I think it really broadens our definition of what a teacher is and in a much more authentic way. Absolutely. I think it's about um, giving children agency. Whatever they decide to do in their life, however they, you know, pursue their, their goals and their dreams, that they, that they know that, that they're in charge, um, for better or worse, that they are the ones directing their life and that they have the capacity to learn and do whatever it is they want to do because they have these skills of self-directed learning. Absolutely. And it prevents the development of that kind of provisional self-esteem, that, that dependence that I need to be told I'm succeeding or doing a good job by somebody else, which is a hard uh, kind of need to break away from, even though it's really not healthy to have that right. need, right? Right. So it's more of the intrinsic motivation. Yeah? Absolutely. I've heard you mention John Taylor Gatto uh, several times, uh, both in interviews and I think on on the blogs as well. And I'd be interested in hearing about his impact on you uh, when you discovered him, what you read, because he's been a huge part of my show. I've made a series of videos about the underground history of American education. But uh, where did you encounter him? Hmm, that's interesting. I'm not sure exactly, but it was definitely um, when I had revisited homeschooling as a parent. Um, mm-hmm. So was not in my you know, graduate school in education. Um, but, you know, he's really an inspirational figure. And of course, Dumbing Us Down, um, probably one of his best known books was just republished right. this past May. So that's exciting that that is now hopefully in the hands of more people. Um, he, my understanding is he's going to be speaking at the Aero conference this summer around, um, alternative education. So it's great to see that, that his legacy is continuing. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, for, I'm sure your listeners are well aware, he was a former New York State Teacher of the Year who resigned in an article in the Wall Street Journal, basically mm-hmm. saying that, you know, schooling kills the family um, and it, you know, destroys children's innate capacities for learning. And um, unlike this sort of myth that we have for social mobility uh, that schools you know, tend to perpetuate that it actually the opposite is true. It tends to sort of put people more in, get them more entrenched in their own um, social status or disadvantage rather than lifting them up. And so he just is such a, um, an empowering figure. Uh, I'm always excited to see when people discover his work, and I'm glad that more of it is is coming out. Indeed. Uh, you know, you mentioned that line from that section of the book, uh, which is that op-ed in the Wall Street Journal. It was called, I Quit, I Think. Right. And he says school kills the family by monopolizing the best or, or, or monopolizing the best childhood. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So this leads me to another question. You edited a book called Choosing Home, where it was telling the stories of mothers who had decided that they were going to stay home and participate in the lives of their children full time versus accepting the messaging that we get, I think, or certainly mothers get in society that like, oh, well, yeah, you know, pregnancy is over. Let's uh, start thinking about getting back to work. And I also think that maybe in a place like, you know, Massachusetts, where Cambridge, Massachusetts, cost of living is is pretty high. I I used to work in that area all the way out to Framingham, all the way down to Needham. And I mean, like if you live inside that 495 belt, it's expensive. And, you know, I was tutoring families that 
dad was a lawyer. Dad was the vice president of some company. Uh, but mom worked too. You know, I mean, that was just standard. Both parents work because that's what adults do, whether they have children or not. And I wanted to see if you felt like people asking you questions about uh, what well, you have a two and a half year old who isn't uh, put away in some kind of school or daycare at this point. Uh, what's up with that? Uh, because that's becoming odd in this world. Right. So I think there's a few things there. One is that um, my colleague, Rachel Cheney, and I decided to edit Choosing Home, 20 Mothers Celebrate Staying Home, Raising Children, and Changing the World, because we wanted to share the stories of, in this case, mothers, because they were um, sort of more accessible in our network, but certainly can be applied to the growing numbers of fathers, stay-at-home fathers as well, who are choosing to give up or forgo career to really devote their time to children. And, you know, certainly... Um, there is a level of privilege associated with being able to make that choice. Yeah. But this, the book highlights um, parents who really had to make serious choices, uh, sell a car, move to a smaller house, um, you know, eat rice and beans, give up a cell phone, those kinds of things um, to really make this work for them. And I think what's most critical for us and why, why we really decided to put together the book was to sort of halt this idea that your role as a parent is to, um, you know, give birth and then get your children ready for school, that that is the, the end game. And we really wanted to say that, you know, that isn't necessarily the, all there is, that you can um, be valuable as a parent by cultivating your children's curiosity, by being home with them, by giving them lots of um, care and attention and surrounding them with resources that can help them to grow. And so it's not surprising, actually, that a lot of the mothers featured in the book are homeschooling mothers as well, who kind of discovered this value in raising children early on in younger childhood and then continued that process into later childhood because they realized that that provides a lot of freedom for their children that school doesn't provide mm -hmm. and that there's a role for this, that, that, that you're objective is not just to send your kid off to school. You can actually be valuable as a parent in many other ways. Right. And also to prep them for school by putting them in daycare. That's right. That's right. Did any common thread emerge from the stories of these mothers that, that stuck out to you about why they made this decision or like what what it was in their priorities? This is the choice that I need to make for my family, my children. Right. I think that was the common message is that somehow in one generation we have gone from, you know, it being acceptable to stay home to now it being culturally countercultural, really, to stay home, to choose to stay home. Um, so that was the message that they were going against the grain. And particularly in this case, a lot of them were highly educated moms, um, great careers, gave that up because they felt the value was so high for them being with their children. And it was much to the um, astonishment of people around them. Yes, absolutely. One final question that I have is uh, a subject that you've covered in a, in a couple of different places. You wrote an article for Natural Mother called uh, Creating an Unenclosed Childhood. And uh, I think there's a blog article on alternatives to school called Natural Learning in an Artificial World. And I was speaking with a young entrepreneur yesterday. His name is Kylan Ginger, and he has a site called Successful Dropout, where he actually interviews uh, successful, and obviously success is a subjective term, but people who have realized success in their own lives by, you know, leaving high school or leaving college or in some cases even leaving graduate school and pursuing a passion in an entrepreneurial way. And, you know, here's Kylan, 10 years younger than I'm wondering, like, oh, how did he figure all this out uh, at that age? Well, I'm still trying to figure these things out in my late 30s. And turns out he was home educated. Yes. And, you know, he grew up uh, out west in a place where he was allowed a tremendous amount of time from a very young age, time by himself, exploring and, you know, as I've seen a lot of the the CPS stories and the crackdowns on kids walking home from school or playing in parks by themselves, uh, that world of children being left free to explore. I think we're probably most people are familiar with the Lenore Skenazy story, the world's worst mom who let her son 
uh, ride the subway by himself at age right. seven or eight after, right. you know, rehearsing that process and preparing him for that process uh, for some time. So th this is something that is really, really frowned upon in today's world. Um, children not under constant supervision, always knowing where they are, always having them enclosed. Right. I mean, I think we've really exiled children from our public spaces. And mm -hmm. I think we've done that more and more to the point where now when we see children, um, even on weekends or afternoons on sidewalks or in, you know, public parks without grownups around, that is foreign. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I find this really troubling that I think that we now all live in these really segregated silos where children are warehoused during the day now for increasingly longer periods of the day and starting at much younger ages than ever before for much greater portions of the year and including summer where they're again going from camp to camp to camp um, and are really exiled from our community. And then we see it on the other end of the lifespan where we have you know, elderly people in silos segregated from the larger community. So and then everyone else is sort of working in their own silos. And I think that that's problematic from a community perspective and from a societal perspective um, when we are not sort of embracing the collective the collectivity of our of our the diversity of our communities. Absolutely. So if you were to uh, promote the idea as Peter Gray does of something like unstructured play. Right. That in the last decade or so has become <laughs> unfortunately it's really sad a more terrifying proposition for a lot of adults. Like what does that mean unstructured? How do you explain that? The in the importance of that? to parents who are really hesitant to not, you know, have a fence around people with really clear guidelines about what they can be doing and what they can't be doing. I even catch myself, you know, when I when I worked at a boarding school before we did anything, I would gather the kids together and I would have a very clear meeting about what my expectations were. Uh, this is what it means, uh, you know, for this to go well. And if these things happen, if these problems occur, this is going to be basically the contingency plan. Now, that was part of that was safety. And there were, uh, you know, legal implications. And that was you know, part of my job. But I found myself kind of replicating this when I, I was supervising like nieces and nephews, like I would do like a short meeting ahead of time and say, here are my expectations. E even me doing that, which I'm wondering, is that necessary or not? Should I really just let them go and let problems occur? And then uh, you know, let them try to solve their own problems. I have a lot of questions uh, about that, but that's the most freedom I ever saw those kids have is when they're playing with me under my loose supervision. Uh, it's obviously school is nothing like that. And play settings that they're in with their parents or grandparents don't look like that at all. There's a surveillance helicopter around them constantly. Right. I mean, in, I imagine your childhood was probably similar to mine, where yeah. we had a lot of unenclosed play, a lot of unstructured play. Grownups weren't around. We were, you know, roaming through the neighborhoods. And that, again, in one generation has has really changed dramatically so that we are enclosing children right. for greater portions of the day and year and then instructing them with adults. And I and I think this idea that children are, are never not watched um, is troubling. Yeah. Uh, and and it also I think speaks to why this there is this moment now for self-directed education. I had a, a parent of a 17-year-old um, contact me recently who was saying, you know, I really want to embrace self-directed learning and and pull my kid out of school. He was having some anxiety issues with high school. And it was it was a problem, but he just but he just isn't self-directed. He just hasn't shown his self-direction. And I think oh. that that's what's happening more and more is that we're sort of killing these these self-directed instincts uh, in children because so much of their day and their year is focused on being told what to do, being taught instead of learning. Um, and it's a much more passive experience. And so they're really lost. And I hope that they're able to kind of regain some of those, that innate capacity to learn and discover and explore on your own rather than waiting around for others to tell you. I hope that that, that, that can be rekindled at some point. Indeed. And what's, uh, what's unfortunate is that kids buy into those, they, they sort of absorb those parental, those adult fears really easily about that kind of freedom. Like, you're absolutely right. Growing up in the 1980s, I could pretty much I mean, I lived in you know a safe part of New Hampshire and I could pretty much do what I want. I could say, Mom, I'm going to ride my bike or I'm going out in the woods and you know, I'll see you in a bit, I guess. Yeah. And that was totally fine until the kidnappers came. 
or until the specter. <laughs> well, until the media. Yeah, exactly. The specter bring, of the kidnappers. Yeah, exactly. right. The white windowless vans. And this this just became, mm-hmm. um, you know, overwhelming, like like being afraid to walk home from the bus stop and looking looking over my shoulder as, uh, <laughs> you know, a, an eight or nine year old boy who uh, had never started uh, any trouble with anyone at that point. But walking home from the, the bus stop, looking over my shoulder and I immediately absorbed those fears and and bought into them and and believed that they were very legitimate. And when it meant that there was going to be much more structure and restriction in my out-of-school time, which was pretty cherished at that age, I remember, um, I just just accepted it because those fears (laughs) seemed, uh, you know, so uh, present and so real. Right. Um, and you mentioned Lenore Skenazy before, so her book, Free Range Kids, of course, goes through this whole evolution of where these unfounded fears came from and right. this sense that somehow childhood is much more unsafe today than it used to be, and, and she really um, challenges those myths and breaks them down. Um, and, I, and I think now, though, we have these sort of unfounded fears combining with a cultural ethos that says children should be enclosed as much as possible in, um, you know, rigorous adult-led programming all year. Yeah, absolutely. And they need to be starting school earlier is a part of that. We're back to that Gatto idea of killing the family. I mean, if this becomes uh, what an eight to 10 hour a day, then you have after school programs. And I understand the necessity of some of these things in certain areas, or certainly people feel the necessity of these things because they don't see the alternatives. But we're talking, you know, 10 hours a day, 52 weeks a year kind of programming for children and not to be, uh, you know, conspiratorial, even though I am. But that's a very useful kind of thing we, we've seen. And, you know, Gatto and others have taught about how school is a very powerful tool for, you know, academics or central planners or uh, scientific managers or social engineers to make the society that they want to make. And knowing that, like once you read Underground History of American Education and you see all these projects that took place throughout the 20th century, turning control of children more and more over to the state is is really something that I'm very, very apprehensive about. Right. And what's particularly disheartening is now we're seeing legislation in many states that uh, aims to lower and ra- raise the compulsory schooling age so that you know, we can kind of see the future of kids are expected and in fact mandated under legal threat of force to be in school from a very early age. I mean, is it possible that we'll mandate for three-year-olds that they have to be in compulsory schooling environments Mm -hmm. um, all the way up to 18-year-olds and beyond? And so I think that 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 is particularly concerning. Indeed. So that just leads me to an absolute final question here on the Alliance for Self-Directed Education. Um, you know, you talked about being interested in educational policy and, you know, the Alliance for Self-Directed Education works to basically normalize and get into the public consciousness this idea of alternatives or primarily being able to teach oneself or or having this important time of a child's life in the control of the family. So how does an organization like that work to counter these kinds of trends in society, whether they're just in the public consciousness or in actual policy? Right. So a couple of things. One, I would say that the Alliance for Self-Directed Education is looking to promote these ideas of self-directed learning, what we've talked about today about Um, the sort of natural capacity for humans to learn, that we don't need to be passively taught. We can be active learners and discover the world around us. In fact, we're perfectly designed to do so. So a lot of it is just information around what self-directed learning is, but then it's also empowering parents and making self-directed education more accessible. So it goes beyond just home education to look at um, self-directed learning in other environments as well that could potentially make this more accessible. So self, community-based self-directed learning centers um, that offer families much more flexibility if they have to work or if there's other life circumstances where they can allow their children to learn in freedom um, without the constraints of coercive schooling, um, but not necessarily be full-time homeschoolers or unschoolers. So we're, we're, we're definitely focused on promoting those kinds of organizations and education innovations that make self-directed education much more accessible to many more families. 
And then I would say on a sort of a personal note for me and the writing and speaking that I do, you know, my big um, focus is on education choice. So I want parents to have lots of different choices to empower parents to really be in charge of their children's education and to determine the best education for them. And of course, personally, I'm I gravitate towards self-directed education as my own personal bias, and I'd want more people to pursue that particular uh, philosophy of learning. Right. But mostly, I just want lots of choices for parents to choose the right education for their children and for their family values and their circumstances. Indeed. Well, I think part of the problem has been these alternatives are not visible enough yet. So I certainly appreciate the work you do to try to make them more visible. If people want to read more of your writing or see more of your work, where can they go? So my blog is wholefamilylearning.com, uh, and I'm on Facebook at Whole Family Learning, um, and on Twitter as well. Awesome. Well, Carrie, I really appreciate you taking the time to help us return to what is a big part of our core message here at, at School Sucks, the self-directed education and making that distinction between schooling and real, authentic education. So thank you very much. Thanks, Brett. It was great to be here. That's why we're shaking.